Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 4th of May. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Hey, Annika. Morning, Tom. And on today's briefing, how did COVID get so bad in India? It's a tale of contradictions about how they took it seriously last year and didn't take it seriously this year. And now these are the consequences. We'll speak to that reporter in Delhi and an Indian man watching on from Melbourne. It's devastating, I think, for most Indians living here in Australia or anywhere else, in fact, outside India, because the situation is really terrible. And uh, most people are worried about their friends and families. That's our briefing in just a moment. First, today's headlines, starting with the situation in India. The government is facing growing criticism over its travel ban to India. Yeah, the criticism's even coming from cricketer Michael Slater, who tweeted that, quote, it's a disgrace, blood on your hands, PM, how dare you treat us like this? This comes as two players in the IPL cricket bubble have tested positive to COVID, which is adding huge stress to dozens of players, commentators and staff trapped in the country. Yeah, and thousands of other Australians there as well. Uh, Several lawyers have questioned the legality of the penalties for breaching the travel ban. I think that there are serious questions about the lawfulness of these measures. Canberra Law Professor Kim Rubenstein speaking to the ABC there. Geoffrey Robertson's also been outspoken on the issue. Yeah, the government says the rules will last two weeks and that they're needed to take the pressure off hotel quarantine where almost 60% of positive cases were coming from India. This is another very difficult decision. I feel terribly for the Indian community. I want to get those repatriation flights running safely again. That was the Prime Minister speaking on Nine Radio yesterday. Annika, I think it's interesting that there's now COVID in the cricket bubble, in the IPL, and obviously the life of a cricket is not worth more than anyone else's. But some of these players and ex-players are massive national heroes. They're very high profile. And now that there's COVID in the bubble, I think that tough decision by the federal government will be put under even more scrutiny and pressure. I mean, at least to make sure that they reopen on that date of May 7 when the pause was initially set to end. Yeah, they've got quite a lot of profile. But over here, even, you know, you're seeing calls from people like Jeffrey Robertson joining with people like Andrew Bolt, who is usually Mm. a conservative commentator, and yet they're all lining up against this. So the government is under pressure, but I think they'd be under more pressure if the quarantine system was overloaded and it did leak into the community again. So I don't think they're going to be reversing their decision on this one. And Gymnastics Australia has apologised after a report from the Human Rights Commission revealed the sport was enabling bullying and sexual abuse. Gymnastics Australia unreservedly apologises to all athletes and family members who've had any form of abuse participating in our sport. Gymnastics Australia President Ben Heap speaking there. Look, the report, which was released yesterday, shares stories of sexual harassment, body shaming and physical abuse towards girls who have competed in the sport at the highest level. And Sex Discrimination Commissioner uh, Report Lead Kate Jenkins said the culture of the sport was still failing to protect children. An environment where athletes' safety and wellbeing are not prioritised and consequently where abuse and mistreatment can thrive. Gymnastics Australia commissioned the report last year and now say they will adopt all 12 recommendations. Lawyers for Christine Holgate say the government and Australia Post have until tomorrow to start negotiations with her before she considers other legal options. The former Australia Post CEO is weighing up legal action against the government and her former employer after claiming she was bullied out of her job. She was, of course, as you remember, slammed by the Prime Minister last year for gifting Cardia watches to executives as bonuses. 
Her lawyers say their offer to the government in Australia Post to mediate uh, her claims will run out tomorrow afternoon. So she's setting a strong deadline. Um, a lot of people have the popcorn out on this one, Annika. <laughs> yeah, look, she said she's going to wait to decide to see what she'll do next after reading that final report from a Senate committee that's investigating her sacking. Now, that's due to be handed down on Wednesday. Where do you see this one going? Will it cause much more pain for the government, do you think? Uh, I'm I'm kind of surprised how much this one's flipped around. Initially, she was really portrayed by all parts of the media, many that are now doing a reversal on this, as somebody that had done a number of things wrong. Uh, the Cartier Watchers was probably the final straw, um, and that's when we saw that outburst from the Prime Minister. I do wonder if it had have happened without the context of all the cultural issues um, in Parliament House towards women, whether this ever would have come up again and whether there would have been a new sympathy for her. Um, I think it, it's fortuitous for her situation that it's come at a time when the Prime Minister's under huge pressure about this. I'm sure they'll reach a nice quiet settlement that we may never hear anything about. <laughs> and Prince Harry has spoken at an LA concert. The gig was called Vax Live. It had some massive stars, J-Lo, Foo Fighters, Selena Gomez, and it raised $60 million for vaccine distribution in developing countries. The Prince spoke out about getting vaccines to everyone, everywhere, getting behind that idea of vaccine equality for all. You've served and sacrificed. Put yourselves in harm's way and acted with bravery, knowing the cost. We owe you an incredible debt of gratitude. Yeah, and he was speaking to loads of vaccinated uh, frontline workers who got to enjoy this amazing concert. So, yeah, good to see Prince Harry out and about in LA. All right, in just a moment, heading to India. The whole world is watching India right now. The situation is critical right now. And these two weeks are going to be a hell for us. Over the weekend, India's daily case numbers of COVID-19 hit 400,000. The death toll is also rising rapidly, with India's health ministry reporting more than 3,600 deaths in the past 24 hours. Now, that's slightly lower than Brazil and the US, which both recorded peaks of around 4,000 deaths. But it's feared the true number of India's death toll could be a lot worse. Yeah, it feels like the doomsday images we saw back in March last year in Italy with bodies piling up in the streets of those small villages is now coming true in India on a much larger scale. Uh, We've seen those pictures from India now of these mass public cremations where you see long rows of fires, each burning a dead body underneath. In this briefing, where is India's COVID crisis going? And has Australia done the right thing with its very strict border policy which includes jail time for anybody from India that tries to make their way back to Australia. It's pretty overwhelming and just unrelenting because it's been consistently bad here for weeks. That's James Oden. He's an Aussie journalist in Delhi, which is the epicentre of the outbreak. Uh, He's the ABC's India correspondent. And James says this massive surge has taken a lot of people by surprise in India. They had gotten cases down to less than 10,000 a day as recently as February, And he says a big part of the problem is complacency after doing relatively well with the virus last year. The reason we're in this mess, simply put, is because of complacency, arrogance and stupidity. There's too much talk from just the people in the street all the way up to, you know, the the halls of power and government here that India had beaten the virus, um, Mm -hmm. that India was somehow better immune to the virus because their death rate was relatively lower. But the death rate was lower 
not because of their superior healthcare system. It's because most likely the country is much younger than the West. But once you had this huge surge last year, there was just this attitude that, you know, we've beaten it, it's over, the worst is over, we go back to our lives. The problem here is that the Prime Minister last year, Narendra Modi, his language was take this seriously. You know, we've got to stop this. If we don't stop this, we'll be set back 21 years. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, he was gloating about how big the crowd was at one of his election campaign rallies. Mm. It's a tale of contradictions about how they took it seriously last year and didn't take it seriously this year. And now these are the consequences. James, can you tell us how the health system's coping? This is what doctors are telling me. It's not my own speculation. Um, that, you know, it's only when you do get to those cremation points or the hospitals that it becomes so much more real and you see that how a simple slip-up, not wearing your mask properly or gathering in crowds, and people don't notice it. And I've spoken with doctors, you know, in the ICU and they now in Delhi say it's impossibly bad that even the media, despite the bombardment of visuals that you're seeing right now, it's still only scratching the surface of the true calamity that is unfolding in India right now. James, where do you think it's going to go from here? All surges have to end. That's what, you know, virology tells us. It goes up and it goes down. This has to come down. It just has to. You know, it's going down in Mumbai. It's Delhi. Maybe it's going down, but that could just be the lockdown working. But it's peaking elsewhere. You know, this has a long way to burn through and it'll burn through different cities at different rates. It'll burn through the villages and the remote towns. We probably won't hear much about that. Their healthcare is shocking. You know, the, the people, mm. you know, the elderly there just won't have any access to healthcare there at all. The goal now is vaccinate and India needs so many more vaccines. There's 900 million adults here. It's going to take them five, six months at best to try and get through most of that population. That's best case scenario. And James, one of the big talking points here in Australia is our decision um, not just to pause flights, but also to threaten people with jail time and enormous fines if they try and come back to Australia from India, potentially through a third party country like those two Australian cricketers did. What do you make of that decision? I mean, certainly the Australians that I've talked to just feel like they've been made into criminals. And I think a lot of them here don't feel like there's been much sympathy in Australia to begin with because people mm. haven't wondered, why are you in India? There's this kind of attitude that you hear that, well, you've had a year to get home, you shouldn't be there. But the people I'm speaking with are here because their parents are ill or, or have died. You know, they've come here to say farewell to their parents. You know, other people have been stuck here for a long time. So I think to these people, it feels like Australia's kind of pulled up the drawbridge and manned the towers, you know, in preparation for the horde. It's quite saddening and many, many people are quite either sad or furious or both. So there's around 9,000 Australians in India, but we're hearing reports that there are around 650 who are particularly vulnerable. Do you know what their situations are? I don't know. There's six, 700. Um, the situation here in Delhi, which makes it so terrifying, if you needed a hospital bed, you probably won't get it. If you're unlucky enough to have it where you do need hospital treatment and oxygen, you know, it, it, it's so tough to get that treatment. And so that's what makes it so terrifying for these people to live here, that if you got it and if you needed hospital treatment, would you get it? You know, it's, it's looking tough. 
You're in Delhi. Is that one of the worst affected cities at the moment? Delhi's the epicentre right now. Um, it started in kind of Mumbai and its surrounding state of Maharashtra, Delhi and the neighbouring state of Uttar Pradesh. And then, it, you know, it moves. It'll, it'll keep moving. So, you know, there's a lot of discussion in Australia. It's like, why don't you do a national lockdown in India? Well, India <laughs> is a huge, huge country. It is a nation of nations. It's a bit like saying, why doesn't Greece lock down because of an outbreak in England? You can't just lock down the country and people, whether it's government or healthcare experts, no one says that there should be a national lockdown, but certainly how city or state lockdowns are implemented is something that needs to be watched carefully. James, how does this work for you as an Australian reporter working for the ABC, um, living there in Delhi with your partner? What, what do you guys make of this situation? How does it work for you? Will you be coming home? Uh, well, we're stuck here like everyone else. So it's just a matter of, you know, I've just got to keep reporting um, as mm. I've been doing. Really, just my time outside is to an absolute minimum right now. And, you know, it's, it's, quite, it's quite terrifying out there. How long do you think you'll stay? Don't know. <laughs> I can't give you an answer. I'm sorry. Just have to, you know, we don't even really have an option. So we just have to wait and see what the Australian government decides. A lot has been made about the numbers coming out of India. Some people say that, you know, America was worse at its peak. They're different countries, though, with different testing rates, different hospitals. So how accurate are the figures coming out of India? And what's the capacity of the health system to actually deal with an outbreak of this size? Yeah, it's hard for me to compare it with America because I obviously wasn't there. Um, mm. India's 400,000 confirmed cases a day. That's a record. That's where we are yeah. now. There's a thing called test positivity rate, which the World Health Organization says should be under 5%, meaning less than 5% of tests come back positive. And that means the outbreak is relatively under control and you're doing enough testing. You know, in Delhi, it's been one in three tests are coming back positive. In like Kolkata, one in two tests are coming back positive. America also had these types of issues as well. But look at the population here. So, you know, we are dealing with 10, 20 million people in these cities. And James, what about the cricket? The IPL's going ahead and we've been focusing on, you know, the Australians who are playing in that or, or coaching or a part of the staff. Um, some very high-profile people involved, David Warner, Ricky Ponting, amongst others. Um, how is that competition even able to go ahead? It's going ahead without a crowd, um, so that at least is uh, is good. It really kind of it feels like the nation's fifty fifty because one part of you know one argument is why is this going ahead? You know, look at the crisis. But other people say we need a distraction. You know, mm. everyone's at, everyone's staying at home. Why not give them a few hours in front of the TV to take their minds off what is an all consuming catastrophe at the moment? That was James Oten, the ABC's correspondent in India. Uh, let's get the perspective of an Indian living here in Australia. Dr. Pradeep Tanija is a senior lecturer of Asian politics at Melbourne Uni. Pradeep, what's it like for you and other Indians watching the crisis escalate from abroad? Well, it's devastating, I think, for most Indians living here in Australia or anywhere else, in fact, outside India, because the situation is really terrible. And uh, most people are worried about their friends and families. They're getting news, uh, you know, both by talking to people over the phone, but also on social media, where, you know, almost every day you are hearing about people you knew who have died as a result of COVID-19. Pradeep, can you explain, like, the, the images of those public cremations have been 
very shocking for lots of us to watch. Can you explain what the culture is around farewelling people in that way in India? Because it's it's unusual for us here in Australia. Well, India is a multi-religious country, as you know, and Hindus cremate, you know, their dead, unless, you know, they're infants or, or very young. Uh, Muslims and Christians, you know, they bury their, their dead. So cremations are very common. Cremations usually take place, you know, very quickly. So people don't, you know, delay uh, funerals uh, and cremations for too long. And so what we have seen here is that normally orderly and very private, you know, funerals, they have become so public because of the sheer number of people who are, who are dying. So Pradeep, how do you feel about the Australian government's response to the situation? They paused flights, but then they went a step further of um, invoking the Biosecurity Act to potentially arrest and punish people with jail time or huge fines that try and come back from India, potentially through third-party countries. What did you make of that strong response? Australia has done well in, you know, in terms of controlling the spread of the virus. So I can understand Australian governments and their concerns in trying to, to limit the number of people coming into the country. But at the same time, when this particular virus was, you know, rampaging through Europe, you know, France, Italy, we didn't see bans against travellers from Italy or France. So, so there, is, uh, there is a bit of a double standard in this. Why do you think that double standard exists? What do you think motivates it? I think it's because the, the Australian citizens who are in India predominantly are people, you know, from India. And it could be that government feels that, you know, these people have families and home and therefore they, they should be okay. And it's uh, not, you know, a big problem. It's been said in, on social media in India that this is racism, that because they, they're not white Australians and therefore it's okay. Do you think that's true? Well... I don't know. I don't know. But certainly, I, all I can point to is the fact that when, you know, we had serious, you know, visuals coming from France and Italy, we didn't see a ban against travelers from those countries. You know, you don't see cremations in Europe, and, and that can be disturbing for some people. But at the same time, you know, you have to look at, you know, as a percentage of the population, the United States was also very badly affected, as you said. That was Dr. Prajeep Tunisia, an Indian academic at Melbourne Uni, carefully, almost gently implying that it's racism that's led us to take a tougher stand on India than we did on other countries as they uh, saw massive outbreaks. What do you make of that debate, Annika? Look, I take a a pretty open view on this. I don't think we should block any Australian citizens or residents from returning to their country, let alone threatening them with jail. So this does seem like um, an unusual step. Having said that, I think there are some issues when we try and compare this with the US and with Europe that really don't come up in this debate. And one of them is we don't trust the numbers as much. So even though as it looks, um, they haven't hit a peak quite like the US did and we still allowed people in from the US, the Australian authorities definitely trusted the figures, the testing rate, um, the health system in the US more than they do in India. So I think they fear that their cases are actually higher and that's what they were seeing. A lot of people flying in from India, coming into hotel quarantine, a huge majority were having this. um, And that's not sort of the case they saw when they were still accepting flights from the US. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that a lot of their systems are less reliable than other Western countries that we're comparing them to, but are some of our perceptions and then our decisions around that informed by a subconscious bias, potentially. Mm. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, we're talking about electric cars and why Australia's 
really a long way behind the rest of the world and why some of our government's policy ideas could put us even further behind. Listener.